So if this is one of your first times with us, what we're doing uh, this uh, fall is we're looking at the, the letter of Colossians. This is a book that Paul is writing to a very young church in the city of Colossae. This is not a church that he planted. This is a church that uh, just somehow sprung up. It's most likely, uh, it's thought that this, uh, this man by the name of Epaphroditus, heard Paul preaching in uh, Laodicea in Ephesus, and then he goes to his hometown to, of Colossae to uh, start a church. And so uh, Paul is writing to them because uh, they have a really an incomplete gospel. They have an incomplete understanding of the Christian faith. And so he is writing to them so that they would know the whole Christ, that they would know the, the, what it looks like to live in Christ. And so we are now looking at uh, Colossians 1, uh, excuse me, Colossians 2, verses 1 through 15. And this is a, a text where we see uh, Paul say that you are alive in Christ, so continue in him. And so that's really the big idea that we want to think about today. But we'll be looking at uh, Colossians 2, verses 1 through 15 to see what Paul means by that. So whether you are here today believing, disbelieving, or unsure of what to believe, Let's listen to God's word with a curious heart and and an open mind. So here's God's word. You can follow along on the wall behind me or in your worship guides. Here's God's word. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding And the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Jesus... As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority." In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we ask that your word would be at work in our hearts by your spirit, that you would uh, show us, that you would convict us of our sin, that you would show us how we uh, are un- unlike you, but at the same time, as you convict us, Lord, we ask that you would comfort us, you, we ask that you would encourage us, we ask that you would nourish us, you, we ask that you would meet us with all your love, that we would know and, and follow you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. 
So recently, Jennifer and I have been on a sugar-free diet, and it's going fairly well. I find myself having more energy, I'm actually hungry less often, and I'm feeling better all around. However, every single time I go to Giant, and, and I go over to get those brown eggs or whatever, and, and buy the milk and whatnot, I, I, you walk right by the corner of the discounted pastries, and it's very tempting just to be like, what's there? And then it's also you go to, the, to buy all your, your, your groceries, and then you're like, oh, there's a Snickers bar for 89 cents. That sounds so good right now. And it's, it's tempting to, to get one of those things. And that's just a picture of our, our, of our regular lives. That's a picture of our lives. It's easy for us to return to old habits. It's easy for us to return to old ways of living because all those habits, those old ways of living were formative. They were shaping. They had a role in making us into the the person that we are today, even if it's just a simple sugar addiction. And the Colossians, however, find themselves in a similar moment. It's not like a sugar addiction. It's actually a spiritual thing that's going on in in their lives. They are tempted to return to their Jewish background, their their Greek religion, their their Roman uh, experiential cultures. They're tempted to return to their old ways of life. And we'll look at those in a moment. But can you relate? Can you relate be, like, they're tempted to return to their old way of life because they don't find Jesus satisfying. They don't find Jesus fulfilling. They actually are, are real, they're, they're thinking to themselves, this is kind of boring. Can you relate to that? Like, it's easy for us to grow bored with Jesus. It's, and we go out looking for a new religious experience. We're looking for the next thing to encourage us in our faith. And it's easy for us to be frustrated with the ordinary. It's easy for us to be frustrated with the everyday. It's easy for us to just be tempted that something else is more significant. It's, and this is all really just a picture of boredom and, discon, and discon, uh, disconnect discontentment. (laughs) But the reality is, and what Paul is saying here, is that Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is sufficient. Because when you know Christ, you can be assured, this is what he's saying in verses 1 through 4, that you have access to the mystery of God. You actually know the secret of God. It is an open secret. It is out there. You know the secret of God, and it is Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus is the one who brings you, it's actually through Jesus we can have wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And if you are in Christ, you have access to that. You have access to all the wisdom in the world. You have access to all the uh, understanding and knowledge in the world. In other words, you can actually know how to live well because of Jesus Christ. And that's a fact. That's what Paul is saying here. And so we, it's, and so what's going on with the Colossians and what's going on with us when we uh, think that following Jesus is boring is that we have a, an abbreviated and incomplete understanding of the Christian faith. We think that uh, Jesus is useful for, well, really it's like this. We only think that Jesus is useful in the sense that he helps us get to know God for the first time. But the reality is Jesus is everything 
in our, our walk with God. Jesus is everything in the, the Christian faith. And what Paul is pushing home is that the grace of God, the love of God, the favor of God, the knowledge of God is for our entire lives. And we can know all those things through Jesus. And so the point is that you are alive in Christ, so continue in him. Jesus brought you to know God. Jesus rescued you, so continue in him. And so in other words, as we continue in Christ, continuing in Christ means that we live a certain way that's really defined by Jesus. That Jesus is really the center of our entire lives. That's the big idea of what Paul's talking about here. And but he's talking about it in a weird way. As you go through this, it's like, what's well, an elemental spirit? There's circumcision. There's bat- What in the world's going on? This is, Paul is talking in a very Jewish way right now. And so I want to dive into this um, and really just walking through this text and looking at what Paul, Paul is saying in, with, with, uh, in the context so that we can actually understand what Paul is saying to us today. So Paul is, goes on to warn them. Like verse 8, see that no one takes you captive by philosophy and so forth. But let me just focus on this word captive. It's, it's a very colorful word. It's like a captive. It's actually like this Greek word for plundering. For like the, it's a word that's used to describe pirates t- attacking a ship, going down in, into their, their treasure storage, stealing all the treasure, taking it aboard their ship, take, and going there, taking the, all the people on the ship and taking them sla- as slaves. So the, the, the image that Paul has here is don't let anyone kidnap you. Don't let anyone take you hostage. And so Paul said, goes on to say that you, will, you let other people take you hostage if you return to your human traditions, your elemental spirits, and so forth. So that's how we let people take us hostage. But let, let's look and see how the specific dynamics of this because he sees the Colossians at risk for being kidnapped. The first uh, risk, the first uh, threat is through uh, philosophy and empty deceit. And just to be clear, this isn't philosophy as an academic study or a major. In the, the, the Greek world, if you were a, a Stoic, you lived a certain life. If you were an Epicurean, you lived a certain way and had a certain life. If you were a, if you were a follower of Plato or Aristotle, you gave yourself to an entire way of life. And so what Paul is warning them is, like, do not return to your old way of life that is really defined and shaped by these philosophers. That's the first way they're at risk. The second way he sees them at risk is is through human uh, traditions. And specifically, he is thinking about the traditions that are man-made, that are human-made. Like, he's not talking about the, the traditions that like, uh, we receive in Christ. He's really re- talking about the, the traditions that men make, that shape their entire lives. Don't just go back to, and return to your man-made laws, to your man-made rules, to your man-made regulations. Don't go back to those things that shaped your entire life because Jesus defined your life. And so the third thing that they're at risk for is the elemental spirits. And this is an odd way of Paul talking. It really is. But Paul is warning them of following false gods. And uh, help me, here's the context for this because it's helpful. 
But in the, the Roman world, in the Greek world, there's this understanding that gods have a particular relationship with a particular place. And so if you are living in, in Colossae, it would be reasonable then with this Roman and Greek thought to follow the gods of Colossae because they are protecting Colossae. They are blessing Colossae. If you're following the gods of, like, say, uh, Athens, those gods of Athens may actually be cursing Colossae, so you'll never see your city thrive and so forth. And so Paul is saying, don't return to these false gods. Don't return to living a life that's defined by those spirits or or, and those like who would who would bless or curse this place. So he's he's warning them: don't return to your Greek way of life, your Roman way of life, or your Jewish way of life. Instead, he goes on to say that we need to live according to Christ. We need to live according to Christ. This that's verse eight. But and so it's it's let's just pause right there because we we see those dynamics of returning to Greek or Jewish or Roman. Ba- or, old ways of living. And while we may think that, oh, hey, well, that's uh, like, of course, we're not going to follow like false gods. Of course, we're not going to return to like human traditions. But the, the reality is the same dynamics that were at work then are actually at work within our hearts today. Because we are looking for the same thing that the Colossians are looking for. They are looking for fullness in life. We are looking for fullness in life as well. We want knowledge. We want experience. We want to know how to live. We want that wisdom. And the reality is that we are made for a relationship with God and to know Him intimately, to live in communion with Him. But the reality is, the reality is, is that we are sinners. And our, the sin has twisted everything. So we look for knowledge in all the wrong places. We look for wisdom in all the wrong places. We look for fulfillment everywhere else except God. And so look where Paul goes. He says that we need to live according to Christ. For in him, verse 9, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so this is actually where Paul sees the solution to the problem that we have. That we are at risk. We, we are in danger of being kidnapped. And the one who can protect us is Jesus Christ, the one who can actually complete our deepest longings for fullness is Jesus. And so he appeals to Jesus here, for in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And he keeps going, for in him, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. But even before that, he talks about as you have received Christ, Continue in him as you are rooted in him, you are built up in him, you are established in him. Paul appeals to Jesus and sees Jesus as the hero and the one who is able to rescue us and to save us from this danger of being kidnapped. And how Paul sees this is is this, that we have been bought by Jesus. We have been rescued by Jesus. We are his we, you have received him, you are in him, you are rooted in him, you are built up in him, you are established in him. In other words, you are Christ's. You are Jesus's. And so Jesus, the picture that Paul's giving us is that Jesus is greater than your old way of life. He is greater than your addiction. He is greater than your sexual brokenness, your upbringing, your family of origin, whatever it is that challenges you and your sinful struggle whatever it is jesus is greater 
Elsewhere, Paul says, you are dead to sin and alive to Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. You are a new creation. And so what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the one who can rescue you. And what he is describing is union with Christ. That's what he's describing. He is describing our union with Christ. He says this very clearly. In him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. And this is an idea that I introduced last week. As we considered that last week, if you are united to Christ, you are united to his people, you are united to his purpose. And so just by way of reminder to to really tie this into the larger argument of what Paul is, is saying here, is that you are in Christ. You are located in Christ. So that when God looks upon you, he sees all the perfection and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is in you. So that we can actually live in a way that Jesus lived. That is a picture of what union union with Christ is. It is a glorious reality. Jesus comes to us and changes our life where he defines us. He changes our life and defines us by his word, by his spirit. And it's a drastic intervention that enables us to live how God always intended, intended us to live. And this is actually always This has always been God's intention for us, for us to live in relationship with him. And that's fantastic news, that Jesus is the one who rescues us and frees us. But how does Jesus do that? How is Jesus really the one who who is our hero? Yeah, he unites us to himself, but how is he the hero? What's Paul say? Jumping down to uh, verse 14, like the big idea is, uh, well, really, 13b, the big idea is forgiveness, that God has forgiven you of all your sin by canceling the record of debt. Let me read verse 14 again, because this is so colorful. This is incredibly colorful. I'll I'll start in 13. God made alive, made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. So the picture, like, Paul's using a very well-known word picture here in the Greco-Roman world. And it's, it's so powerful, we feel the drama in it just even 2,000 years later. And the Greek word for record of debt, it is the same word that is used to, to describe the formal written charges that criminals uh, were sentenced with or charged with. And, and so uh, the, re, the, the, re, the picture that we have here is that God knows everything that you have done. He knows everything that you will do. And the reality is we are sinners. And there's a record of our sin. And God takes this record and nails it to the cross. But the word picture, just to make sure I'm clear, that when someone was crucified, the record of their crimes was put right above their heads. And these crimes are written out, and it's nailed to the cross. So that whenever you would walk by, you're like, oh, there's a murderer. Oh, there's a thief. Oh, there's Jesus, the king of the Jews. That's what was written right above Jesus as he was crucified. That was the charge for which he died. And so the the picture that Paul is giving us and he's connecting to Jesus' work upon the cross is that 
Your record of sin, my record of sin, is nailed to the cross where it said, King of the Jews. So that Jesus died for Robbie's sins. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus died for the sins of his people. That's the picture that Paul is giving us here. That Jesus is actually the, the one who paid the penalty for your sins. He died in your place. He bore all your sins, all your transgressions, all your failings, and died for you. That's the picture that Paul gives us here. But it's not just that. Look right, jump down right next to to verse 15. That Jesus, by dying for you, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. In other words, what Jesus did, Jesus defeated your greatest enemies. Jesus is the one who's victorious over your enemies so that you can have life with him. And so connecting this to something that I said earlier, that you are dead to your old ways of living. You are dead to your old ways of living, and you are now alive in Christ. Jesus frees you to be a different person. (coughs) Here's an example of that. And this is uh, an example, um, this is, from my friend Sam, and Sam, uh, he he taught, even u- uses th- this language to describe his life. See, my friend Sam, if you look at his family tree, uh, his entire family is devastated by divorce. His parents were divorced. His grandparents were divorced. His great grandparents were divorced. I, perhaps even four generations back, there was divorce in his family, and so he, so Sam like looks at his kids and says, I don't want them to be devastated by another generation of divorce. I want to seize this life that Christ brings me so that I am freed to be different from my parents and their marriage and my upbringing and my family of origin. I am a new person. See, Jesus is greater than all your enemies. He's greater than all your struggles. He's greater than all your sins. He's greater than all these things. Is, our, is your picture of Jesus that big? Or is Jesus just someone who helps you get to know God? He's actually not the one who can deliver you and rescue you from your sins and your struggles and the brokenness in your life. That's the picture of Jesus that Paul gives us here. That if you know Jesus, Jesus is greater than all the enemies, all the sin, all the challenges in your life because he has defeated your enemies for you upon the cross. That's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. That's amazing. That's the one whom we are united to. Now, we passed over a few verses, verses 11 and 12, that I want to return to because this is where Paul uh, uses very colorful images that are just really rooted in uh, Old Testament culture and customs that really shaped the imagination of the Jewish Christians that he is writing to here. And so I want to lean into these verses, uh, verses 11 and 12. But, and I, I want to also recognize that in doing so, I'm going to be talking about one of our distinctive practices of a church, that we are a church that practices uh, infant baptism. And if you have been around uh, us, like we're only a young church, only 10 months, this, you'll know that if you've been here for 10 months, this is the first time that uh, I'm going to be bringing up a, our specific distinctive practice. And I do so because God's Word's bringing this up. And because we want to be known as a church that centers on Jesus. 
That's a huge thing. That's a huge thing. And so, but even in doing this, you'll see how we uh, are known, are centered on Jesus here. So just to lean into these verses 11 and 12. So Paul, like I said, he's talking in a very Jewish way to describe how God is at work in our life. How that Jesus is the one who rescues us and how Jesus is greater than our enemies. How Jesus is truly at work. So how does he do this? Well, first off, Paul's uh, point goes to circumcision. And he talks about circumcision in verses, uh, very specifically, verse 11. And circumcision is a sacrament of the, of the Old Testament. There, there's another sacrament of the Old Testament. It's the Passover. But circumcision and Passover, those were the two things that the Israelites centered their life around. Like in terms of their, re- their regular life and family practice, it was circumcision and Passover. And circumcision is, was a visible sign that you were included into God's family, that you were uh, an Israelite. But contrary to uh, what one may expect, circumcision was not actually about one's obedience to God. That's not what circumcision was about. Circumcision was actually about God's work within his people. Like, this is what uh, Paul says in Romans 2. A Jew is one inwardly. Look at that. Inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. So the circumcision is actually supposed to, is about a spiritual reality of what God is doing in your heart. And so Paul even comes to this, is that you have been um, circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He's pointing out that there's a spiritual work that God is doing in your hearts that the circumcision was a picture of. And so as Paul is speaking to these Jewish Christians about their tradition, he goes on to explain what baptism is, that baptism is very similar to circumcision. He links the two things. That baptism, just like circumcision, is actually about what God is doing in our own lives. It's actually, it's primarily and fundamentally about what God is doing in our hearts. That's what baptism is actually a picture of. And this is provocative. And I'm, and I'm aware of this, that if you are, are from a, another church tradition, a Baptist church tradition, non-denominational tr- uh, church tradition, um, you've actually heard the opposite. That baptism is when you, ma- you mark yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's when you say, hey, I want to be known as a follower of Jesus Christ. That public demonstration, that that understanding of baptism is partially true. But that's not the complete picture of baptism. I say it's partially true. Like, go back to Jesus, what he says. Repent and be be baptized for the kingdom of God's here. That's what Jesus says in Mark 1. But what what Paul is doing is that he, he is linking baptism to what God was signifying in circumcision. He links the two, and we need to remember that here's a principle for reading Scripture, that the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. And so Galatians tells us that when we are baptized, we are clothed in Christ. Uh, To use Paul's very chilling language in Romans 6, that we have been baptized with Christ in uh, in death. We have been buried with Christ through our baptism. And so baptism, again, is not primarily about what we do. It is fundamentally about what God is doing in our lives. 
And this is for us. And, and, and God is at work in our hearts and our lives more than we think. He's at work in more people's hearts and our lives than we think. It's, he's in our, like Acts uh, 2.38. We hear Paul, Peter say that this promise is for you and your children, that God is at work in you and your children. And so that God's promises not only belong to uh, Jesus' followers and believers, but also to their children. And perhaps one of the most provocative things that Paul ever wrote is that even children are made holy by their, their mother in the book of Corinthians. And so we need to remember that actually baptism is a sign of God's work in our lives. Uh, and let me just, I'm using this word sign over and over and over again, right? And so this is a word I, I need to clarify and explain what it is. What is a sign? But here's, here's an easy example. How do you know if a person is married? You look at their left hand on their ring finger. Is there a, a colorful band? Like, if there, is there a wedding ring? Like, that's, so that's a sign. A sign that someone is married is by looking at their hand. Like, the wedding band is just a, a piece of metal. Perhaps it's tungsten. Perhaps it's something else. But it is a sign of a, of a reality that has actually defined their life. Baptism is the same thing. It's, baptism is a sign. It's just water from like a bottle or the tap. And it's, it's, it's a sign that God is at work in your life. And so it's a sign like that. God's at work in your life, and baptism captures that. And so coming to like one of our, our, our more distinctive practice, we, ba- we baptize both believers and their children. And largely in part to this text because Paul is connecting baptism to an Old Testament way of understanding how God's promises are multi-generational to you and to your children. And this is a helpful way to really summarize. And this is um, from uh, author Tish Harrison Warren. Some of you have read her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary. You know I'm a huge fan. But this is what she writes. Before these little ones cognitively understand the story of Christ, before they can affirm a creed, before they can sit up, use the bathroom, or contribute significantly to the work of the church, grace is spoken over them, and they are accepted as part of us. They are counted as God's people before they have anything to show for themselves. That's a picture of grace. That is a picture of the grace that God shows each and every single one of us, that we are counted as God's people before we have anything to show for ourselves. And a few weeks ago, just to like really illustrate this and to like kind of like bring this home, a few weeks ago, I had the joy of sitting down with um, one of our, our, our young children in our church, Isaac Brown. He's over next door learning um, about learning catechism right now. But Isaac sat down with myself and a few of our elders, and like he uh, wants to become a member of the church. He's, he's like, hey, I, I, I know Jesus. I want to be known as following Jesus. So he wants to become a member of a church. And so we're asking him some questions, and it's, this is comical. Uh, one of the elders asked him a question. He's like, so are you a sinner? And he's like, yep. It's like, hey, is your mom a sinner? And his mom's right there. He's like, yep hilarious it's like so like when was the last time when can you give an example of when you sinned that you were aware of that you're aware of it that you know you sinned and without me missing a beat Isaac just says this afternoon when I punched my brother in the face that and 
It's like, so what did you do at that moment? It's like, I apologize because that wasn't right. Like, we were playing, and my parents told me not like, to, be, to be gentle, and I went ahead and was being too rough. I use this story as an illustration to show that God is in, at work, even in our young children. And that's a picture, actually, of how God is at, actually at work in our hearts. When Jesus says that we are to have faith like a child, we are actually being told by Jesus, look at the children around you and see how I'm at work in their lives. Because God is at work more generously and more abundantly than we expect him to be. Because God's grace is massive and lavish and his family is huge. And he's at work in every single one of his children. And this is actually why Paul is talking about circumcision and baptism here. Because it's a big deal to him. Because if you are uh, baptism, you have been marked by God that you are that he is at work in your life. It is a constant reminder that God is living in us. It's a constant reminder that we have received Christ, that we are alive in Christ, that we are being established in Christ. So let's continue in him. That's what our baptism is a picture of. It is a picture that you are dead to sin and alive to Christ. It is a picture that you have been crucified with Christ. It is a picture that Christ bore all your sins upon him when he died for you upon the cross. That is, it's a beautiful picture that God is at work in in your life. And so I don't, I would be remiss and I would be failing failing right now if we put all our attention right now on baptism. That's not the point. The point is that we have a Savior who is greater than our enemies. We have a Savior who is greater than our sins. He is greater than our struggles. He is greater than all the forces that have shaped us and made us into the people whom we are today. Jesus is greater than all those things. And so let's continue in him because as we continue in him, we will continue to be shaped by him because he is at work in our lives every single moment, every single day, in every single way. God is constantly with us because we are fully united to Christ and we are in him. That is our hope, that as we sang earlier, we belong to Christ. That's our hope. Let's pray.